the huge responsibility that we have today in many, many countries where we are the prime source of generation in those countries. So just providing day-to-day megawatts on the grid to power hospitals, public services, utilities, etc., that people rely on. Good day, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and joined by my co-host, Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. Looking forward to continuing our dialogue on GE Vernova today with a focus on our gas power business in this episode. So let's get on with it. Really excited to uh, have with us today, Eric Gray. Eric is the CEO of GE Gas Power and a long season tan. Eric, you've been with GE for over 20 years, an amazing career. Thank you for joining us today on Cutting Carbon. Jeff, Brian, really happy to be here again. Thank you for the opportunity. So, Eric, the gas turbine business uh, is an integral part of GE Vernova, in large part due to the large installed base that we have. Can you maybe talk a little bit about this fleet or installed base and the important role that it plays? Sure, Brian. That's a great question. So we have an installed base of over 7,000 gas turbines around the world. And the best way to think about this is roughly one in every two gas turbines are a GE Vernova gas turbine in the world today. Great. Maybe talk to us, Eric, a little bit about the role that gas plays today, an important role. And I think often when people think about the energy transition, they're not always understanding the role that gas will play. Maybe help our listeners understand that a little better. So in a world where energy security is becoming more and more important in terms of the energy trilemma, gas has become even more at the focal point. It plays many roles. First, One of the biggest opportunities we have from a decarbonization perspective is continuing the journey of replacing coal to gas. So that's number one. Number two, when you think about grid farming and you think about the fact that it's supporting incremental renewables on the grid and allowing those renewables to become active, it's really providing a lot of support there and ensuring that you can fill the periods when there's not enough renewable power in the peak periods with dispatchable gas that's already a low carbon solution in and of itself. And it's really providing those two major uh, sources, I would say, today. Great. And maybe for our listeners, you used the term the uh, energy trilemma. For those of our listeners that haven't listened to some of our previous episodes where we've gone deep in this, this is the need of our customers really to provide a combined reliable, affordable, and more sustainable electricity, balancing all three of those together. So Eric, maybe talk a little bit about within our fleet, we've got heavy duty and aeroderivative gas turbines, maybe help our listeners understand maybe some of the unique, what are the differences there and just some of the attributes of that fleet? Sure, so I would say in our heavy duty fleet, we've got everything from units that are roughly 100 megawatts up to 400 megawatts. And that's really providing base load critical power to supply large parts of uh, networks with sustainable and reliable energy. Our aero fleet is uh, more flexible. It's smaller assets, 20 to 30 megawatts, can be dispatched to 100% base load within minutes, can be shut off, and very quick to install. So we can install our TM2500 mobile units in the course of a few months and really start to provide reliable power for areas that are either in a situation of an emergency or just need mobile power that they can move from one local site to another. 
so Eric, as I think about our installed base and these different technology assets, I want to think about the lens of the energy transition. We talked about that a little bit. And right, there's a huge focus on reducing CO2. And, and you've already mentioned that the coal to gas transition, how do we move from higher carbon intensity to lower carbon intensity assets. But I know for us in gas power, that's not the end of the story as we're thinking about a whole new suite of technologies to take our gas turbines to the next step. We always hear this concern of what about carbon lock-in with a gas turbine because it's burning natural gas, but that's not really the story. So maybe you can help our listeners understand for those who have a gas turbine, considering a gas turbine, I want to understand that pathway. What are the technologies that the team is developing that would allow these gas turbines the flexibility to be even lower carbon emitters? Absolutely, Jeff. That's a, uh, a really good question. First and foremost, if we think about combustion technology, GE has over 8 million operating hours today on some level of hydrogen capability across our existing fleet. And if you look at that install base today, we have assets that are capable anywhere between 20% and 100% hydrogen burning today. And we have an investment strategy where our pathway is to get the majority of our um, heavy duty baseload units up to 100% by 2030, leveraging all the experience that we've gained over the last 20 years in terms of being able to operate on hydrogen. The limiting factor today is really just going to come down to the infrastructure and the amount of hydrogen that's required to burn in gas turbines, which is why we're especially focused on those smaller aeroderivative units today, because there isn't enough infrastructure already existing today that would allow a 20, 30 megawatt unit to burn for peak periods of time on hydrogen capability. The second pathway is post-combustion carbon capture. And from that perspective, we're doing a lot of research in terms of the actual ability to capture the carbon. But more importantly for today, it's really the integration of a carbon capture facility along with a power plant being able to use exhaust gas recirculation, actually increasing the intensity of the carbon such that when you capture it, you're capturing it more efficiently being able to use the steam cycle of a combined cycle power plant to be the steam source for the carbon capture facility. So really looking at something that GE has done and done well over a number of years is really integrating the carbon capture plant with the combined cycle facility in order to cut down on the amount of efficiency losses in the pathway to decarbonizing that facility. So Eric, with a large installed base, obviously expectations of our customers, I'm sure, are very high for us. Can you maybe just share some thoughts when we think about servicing and the opportunities on our fleet? How best can we serve our customers as they're thinking about the energy transition? No, it's a really great question, Brian. And, and there's actually a lot we can do for the existing installed base. In my mind, it all starts with doing routine maintenance and overhauls on the gas turbine. The efficiency that you're able to get back when you come back in and do an overhaul and install new OEM parts into that turbine is the first step to gaining the efficiency and ensuring that you're consistently looking at lowering the carbon intensity. The next step would be is instead of installing the original parts that maybe your turbine was designed for, installing an upgrade that has the capability to add both, in many cases, increased efficiency as well as increased output. 
So again, just reducing that carbon intensity, and it's actually a metric that we look at quite often is just how do we get more megawatts for less gas input, reducing carbon intensity into the environment. The other part that we've done a lot of investment on is really looking at flexibility. So we spoke about a little earlier the fact that gas turbines are providing that renewable support. Well, what that means is the ramp rate at which we need our gas turbines to come on and put megawatts on the grid is becoming increasingly important. The low loads that we can go down to and avoiding a start. So some of the most intensive carbon that comes out of the gas turbine is during a start. Rather than shutting the turbine down, just being able to invest in technology that allows you to come down to a much lower load can really cut down on some of the environmental impact. And then lastly, on the top end, we've talked about upgrades, but there's also things like peak fire, where when you need a little bit more megawatts, rather than having to bring another asset onto the grid, you can get a little bit more out of what's already running. Again, all great ways for us to partner with our customers and help them lower the carbon intensity of the megawatts that they're putting out onto the grid. Great, very helpful. And that's great, Eric, because again, our customers have invested in an asset And so that allows them to maximize the use of that asset, whether it's through a new fuel or by having better flexibility or by maintaining or improving overall operability and efficiency. So, right, it's not always about what's the newest thing. Sometimes it's about making sure the asset that's in your portfolio is running the best it can. Absolutely. And and that's all part of the partnering that we do with our customers where we really need to get an understanding of how they intend to utilize the asset, how it plays with the rest of their portfolio, where it plays, and then we can help them structure it in the best configuration possible to utilize it to fit their needs. Now, Eric, when we talked about hydrogen, one of the questions we didn't talk about is, and you mentioned this, one of the big challenges with hydrogen today is not the gas turbines not capable, but supply can be limited. But I know many of our customers are very interested in that long-term play. Help us understand maybe, is that something as we think about customers who are thinking about a new unit, are there ways we can kind of enable them and that plant to be ready for hydrogen or ready for carbon capture when they've got to go forward in the future? Absolutely. So I think it's largely structuring the BOP, the balance of plant, to ensure that when the hydrogen does become available, that the facility is capable of it. And then at that point, you'll need a hydrogen blending skid and the new combustion system, and you're off to the races. So we are absolutely making sure that there is no asset that will be left behind. Our customers are very concerned about stranded assets making an investment today. So a big part of what we're doing for them is really making these ready for the future to cut down on the amount of investment. And it's a big part of the conversation that we're having with our customers today. And Eric, I wanna stress on something you talked about, it's that integration of the steam cycle and leveraging that steam for part of the carbon capture process. But maybe you could spend a minute because the concept of using steam from our bottoming cycle for purposes other than power, as I think about CHP or district heating, that's actually not new to our DENA. That's something we've done for many years. Maybe you could speak about that. No, absolutely, Jeff. Again, it's common that in many of our combined cycle facilities, 
we have an extract of the steam that's being generated where a portion of it will go to the steam turbine to create power. But then to your point, a portion of that steam can either be used for district heating, for chemical processes, and in the case of post-combustion carbon capture, it will be the heat source that's required to heat those contactors up to actually release the carbon from the contactors such that they can be sequestered, cooled down, and then reused again in the next cycle of the process. Right, so the key is there that our engineering team's already comfortable how to handle steam extractions, how to manage the system, how to do the integration. What's new is the application to carbon capture, but the concept of utilizing the steam for more than just to generate power is not new to our team. So that's really great to hear that we've got that kind of muscle, that knowledge in-house already. Absolutely, absolutely. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. So, Eric, we've talked over uh, several seasons of Cutting Carbon about the importance of governments, you know, really introducing policies to help accelerate the energy transition. Can you speak some to how some of these policy changes are impacting gas power in particular and how governments are starting to recognize and appreciate that role of gas the way you described it and maybe its impact, maybe as an example, USIRA or some of these other policies that are being considered? I'll actually start there, Brian. So I think in the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act, it's created a huge catalyst in terms of the uh, financial incentives required to really spring hydrogen capability and carbon capture forward. Some of the tax incentives and the ability to stack those tax incentives within the Inflation Reduction Act are really generating a lot of financial interest in terms of moving these technologies forward and making projects that were once borderline being economical, now being in the money and really providing that pathway to continue to invest in the technology that will just continue to get better and better over time. In my travels around the globe, maybe next I'll go to Europe, a lot of our customers there are very interested in the European Union and what they're working on, really trying to model a very similar structure to the Inflation Reduction Act that would provide those tax incentives to make this new nascent technology more affordable and start to get some pilot plants up and running. So I would say both in the U.S. and in Europe, we are actively working projects today because of some of these government incentives, both in the U.S. and then in the U.K. actually, where uh, carbon capture you know, will become very real in the next several years here. Eric, as you talk about some of the regions, U.S. and Europe, obviously heavily influenced by policy, it strikes me that the role of gas really is different in different parts of the world. For some parts of the world that are rapidly adding renewables, gas is playing that balancing, that shock absorber that can flex as the supply from renewables may not always be there. But in other parts of the world, gas is playing maybe at times a much more critical, but certainly different role. Can you maybe elaborate on that? I think of places like uh, parts of Asia, maybe other uh, developing economies. No, I think two good examples, Southeast Asia, where uh, they would typically be installing another coal facility. Instead, they're installing high-efficiency H-class gas turbines 
that have a much lower carbon intensity than that of the coal facility that would have been installed. And then I'll share with you my recent trip last week to Iraq, where we presented to the prime minister a pathway to take flare gas and actually burn that in gas turbines. So rather than seeing that natural resource being flared and just burned into the atmosphere, actually utilizing that gas in a gas turbine to provide additional power for the people in that country. Again, to your point, very different pathways than some of the other parts of the world today that are looking more so at hydrogen and carbon capture. But in those places in the world where they just need more megawatts on the grid and gas is a great place to start. And Eric, that flare gas is, is such a critical element because if you think about it, that's gas that has high energy content. It's easily used in a gas turbine, but it's flared. But then that means they've got to take gas oil out of the ground just as well to make the power. So literally, it's this double savings because not only are you not just putting the flare gas components into the atmosphere, but by making power, you save the carbon emissions of all that extra gas oil you would have had to take out anyway. And... We've all seen the pictures of flares and the particulates coming out of it. Putting that gas into a gas turbine also has benefits in terms of environmental issues that you're not putting some of those particulates and some of those elements into the environment just because of the efficiency of the gas turbine and how clean that combustion system or how efficient that combustion system is. So it's such a win-win economically, environmentally. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear about that news. No, it was a great visit, Jeff. Very well received. And again, this is, I think, about flare gases, right? These are gases that have methane or other hydrocarbons and hydrogen, so they're very flammable, easy to combust, easily can be used in a gas turbine. So that's, that's, that sounds like a huge win for everyone. And technology that we've had for years, Jeff, in terms of being able to take those types of gases, design the right combustor, and then burn them in our gas turbines. Uh, many years of experience where we've done this all over the world, as a matter of fact. I mean, to me, Eric, it really sounds like the message, and I always think of gas turbines as this architecture. It's a system that can be adapted over time. It's a new combustor. It's a new hot gas path. It's different accessories. Now, whether it's talking about hydrogen or flare gas or CCS, it's an adaptable system that helps our customers as their needs evolve. So as you think about all these things happening, the policy, the technology, and you think about the transition we're in as we go into Vernova, what really excites you about the future of the gas power business? I would say just, Jeff, uh, number one, the huge responsibility that we have today in many, many countries where we are the prime source of generation in those countries. So just providing day-to-day -day megawatts on the grid to power hospitals, public services, utilities, etc., that people rely on. So I think, uh, number one, that's extremely exciting and something that, depending upon where you are in the world today, you somewhat take for granted. The fact that when you go to flip a light switch on, it comes on. We do business in a lot of countries today where they don't have that luxury and they're just still trying to build up the base for the megawatts that they need for their populations. Then you get into other countries or other areas of the world where you can now afford to move to the next step, which is really decarbonizing what already is a relatively clean exhaust stream to zero carbons. And 
I think we sometimes mislabel a gas turbine because as we've already talked about today, we have the capability to burn a lot of different fuels in our turbines. Gas always gets associated with natural gas, but as we've talked about, it could just as easily burn hydrogen, for an example, as it can natural gas, becoming a zero carbon or zero emission resource for electricity generation, and then carbon capture. I think we are just starting to understand all that this technology is capable of. And I think as we move into the future and as we continue to invest and others continue to invest, we're just going to find that the runway for our turbines is a lot longer than I think most expected. Great. Eric, it's really been wonderful chatting with you. Again, as always, learned something new in our conversation today. Thank you. Jeff, thank you. This has been a great experience for me. Big fan of uh, Jeff and Brian here on this Cutting Carbon and happy that I was invited to talk to all of you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And again, for Brian, myself, and the entire podcast staff, thank you. And to all our loyal listeners, thank you. For more information, please don't forget to check out our show notes. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to drop us a note at cutting.carbon at ge.com. Thank you for listening. This is Cutting Carbon.